Before we get started here, folks, I wanted to let you guys know how you can help people that are desperately in need. We are already in many parts of this country on the verge, if not in the middle, of a hospital crisis that is going to mean a blood crisis. If you can, then I would encourage you to go to redcross.org slash give dash blood. Again, redcross.org slash give dash blood. That is where you can locate a center where you can donate blood. Thank you very much. This is your hyperbole-free coronavirus update for March 25th. At the time that I record this at 12.03 p.m. Pacific time, in the United States of America, we have 62,364 confirmed cases of the virus and 878 deaths. The tri-state area of New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut account for 359 deaths. That's 40% of the national total. Senate leadership has come to an agreement on a coronavirus stimulus bill that would directly send money to most Americans. Under the plan, people making $75,000 or less a year are expected to receive checks of $1,200 per person. Couples making up to $150,000 will receive $2,400 with an additional $500 per child. Payments decrease for those who made above $75,000 with an income cap of $99,000 per individual or $198,000 for couples. As of the publication of this podcast, the bill has yet to be voted on. Stay-at-home orders have been announced in Boulder and Denver, Colorado, as well as the following counties in Florida, Miami, Miami Beach, Alachua County, Leon County, and Orange County, which contains Orlando. There is also a stay-at-home order for Atlanta, Georgia, as well as a shelter-in-place order in Savannah, Georgia, effective yesterday. This has been your hyperbole-free coronavirus update. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Politics, Politics, Politics program for, uh, well, March 25th, 2020. I guess I already did the date. My name is Justin Robert Young. We're going to be talking about Joe Biden. We are going to be talking about Donald Trump primarily today, and we're going to have a great chat with our friend Eric Geller from Politico. He does cybersecurity and pretty much all things internet related for that website. Uh, I think he is probably one of the most valuable voices writing this in the country, mostly because the stuff he writes, people in political power read. There's a lot of great stuff written about election tech. By and large, it's in places that stodgy old DC doesn't care about. But Politico is very well read. Eric Geller does very good work there. To me, he is a perfect nexus. We're going to talk to him all about how the coronavirus has affected various different uh, election technology systems, including vote by mail, whether or not a vote by mail uh, element of our upcoming elections, primary or general, are even feasible, as well as the big question, online voting from home talk about all that but first I I want to address something because be it the free political newsletter be it Twitter be it this podcast the number one thing that I get the number one question that people 
come out of the woodworks, they slide into my DMs, they email me cold, they email into the show, they text me if they have my number, is this question or some version of it. How does this affect Donald Trump in the general election? And sometimes it'll be in the form of an opinion. Oh my God, he's definitely going to win because of this. Sometimes it'll be in the form of, uh, oh my God, he's definitely going to lose because of this. Sometimes I'll even get, uh, people get fancy and they'll they'll graft some other element of the news of the day onto, uh, onto it. But the, the engine is the same. How is this going to affect Donald Trump in the general? And I'm here to tell you, right now, I don't know, and anyone who tells you that they do know is lying. Because as we record this right now, we are at the beginning of our death curve. The death curve is how many people are going to die from this disease per day. The curve is each day's total of dead getting higher. The death curve in Italy went from, by the time it hit triple digits, which is what we hit on Monday, eventually, hopefully, peaked around 800. I think it was like 795, something like that. It took 13 days to get there. Meaning that there were a couple days of 100, 150, 200, it made a big jump to 400, and then there was a steady stream of 400, 500, 600 dead per day until it capped out around 800. Now, it seems like from there it's dropping. Dropped to 600, bounced a little bit back up to 700 yesterday. But at least it doesn't seem like it is escalating again. Fingers crossed. We don't know at all what this is going to look like, which is the reason why I don't know what the potential political ramifications are. We are in the eye of the storm. We're going to know a lot more by the end of this week and much more by the end of next week. Now, there are signs both horrifying and promising. But if we really want to look right now, right now, at how Donald Trump is doing and extrapolate some possible scenarios, here's where we would start. Here are the last seven public opinion polls for Donald Trump. Plus one, Emerson poll. Plus four, Gallup poll. Tie, Monmouth poll. Minus seven, Politico Morning Consult. Minus seven, Rasmussen, which usually is his best poll. That is the leading indicator for him. They have him minus seven, way behind the average. Hill Harris X poll has him at a tie. And the economist YouGov has him at minus four, 47% to 51%. Any of those numbers are among the best that he has gotten. He is currently in the real clear politics average at uh, 46.3% approval, 49.9% disapproval. His disapproval being below 50% is uh, something of an achievement historically. And his approval being high enough that it might eclipse it is a bit of a departure from where it it has been Historically, all of that doesn't mean a thing. It doesn't mean a thing if within two weeks we have a Great Depression on our hands and everyone's grandma's dead. So what should we look for going forward? Well, you look at the job that he is doing currently. And primarily, his interaction with the public are during these daily Press briefings. Here are a few things that just are on my radar. Number one, his demeanor during these briefings 
have been upbeat to goofy. This is Donald Trump beginning a press conference where he's declaring a state of emergency. Beautiful day in the Rose Garden. Here he is introducing his Secretary of State. You know what I'd like to do? I'd like him to go back to the State Department, or as they call it, the Deep State Department, if you don't mind. And here he is joking with one of his leading health advisors. Saturday, I had a little low-grade fever. Uh-oh. <laughs> so, actually, probably a GI thing. But, you know, I'm meticulous. I'm a physician. I looked it up. I ended up piggy bank. I'm from Walter Reed, so I got a test late Saturday night, and I'm negative. I stayed home another day just to... <laughs> Thank you for saying that. Yeah. Now, this is an eye of the beholder thing. There are many listening right now that I'm sure are just made furious by listening to somebody joke about a serious situation. They would prefer a leader come in with a far more measured, if not grave, tone. This is part of why Andrew Cuomo's tenor to say nothing of his content, has been praised recently. However, I also imagine that there is a part of the population that appreciates some element of levity in a moment of either hysteria or ugliness. Now, if you're just asking your boy, I could probably do with a few less yucks. However, this will all be contingent on the results, meaning if this ends up with a lower death toll than we might expect relative per capita to other major nations, then that kind of behavior will be seen as forward-thinking leadership. If the leader wasn't going to keep everybody loose, then maybe they would not have produced at the level that they did. If there is a higher death toll, then this will be the example of him fiddling while Rome burns. Maybe if he wasn't so interested in getting these laughs, we could have a few more abuelas running around. Number two, up until this point, Donald Trump has gotten credit for travel bans while the death count is low, but that is about to be over. When Donald Trump went to that Rose Garden and first declared a state of emergency, his old white guy Avengers, remember everybody from Walmart and Target and Roche and a bunch of these medical testing companies, they all lined up behind him. And so far, it seems as if the public-private partnership, when it comes to testing at least, has indeed ramped things up to a level that, if this were to happen again, you would hope would be either on standby or ready to go far earlier than it is this time. However, we have not gotten to the point with testing where this is a true, I think I might have it, where can I drive and get my nose swabbed situation. Indeed, Walmart, Target, and CVS were up there because they were offering their parking lots. So stuff like that could, can, and hopefully will happen. Best I could find, Walmart only opened their first drive through testing sites yesterday. That is March 24th. And even then, it's only for medical staff who fear that they might be compromised, not the public. Put simply, travel bans are politically effective when the rest of the world is dying and you aren't. But we're dying now. March 24th was our deadliest day ever with 224 people succumbing to the coronavirus. Looking at the death curve in countries, at least those without an authoritarian government that controls the media, it was two weeks from when Italy went from over 100 deaths a day to what we hope was their peak of 800. We are in for very dark days ahead. At which point, politically, it will be very hard to say it could have been worse. Number three, Fauci is bae. 
<laughs> I, I just want to say this right now. At least for my money, Dr. Anthony Fauci and Dr. Burks are, are Norman Schwartzkopf level heroes to me right now. Maybe it's just growing up in Florida and relying on these kind of celebrity hurricane tracking weathermen. Big shout out to Brian Norcross. But there is just something about a calm professional explaining things in clear and plain language that I very much appreciate. And if there was one moment that I, who tries to keep myself very even keeled, that I felt a degree of panic under my fingernails, it was when reports were, were, were coming out that there was friction between Dr. Anthony Fauci and President Donald Trump. He needs those voices on the dais, whether this is good, bad, or ugly. They, to me, are extraordinarily important, and politically, from the Trump perspective, they give the kind of messaging clarity that he will never be good at. I don't think Trump supporters believe that his greatest strength is in messaging clarity. His best strength is in being a friendly face and voice to those that care about him and in the process enraging those that don't like him. It's not about telling you specific things with specific outcomes. That's Fauci. That's Burks. If they remain there the entire time, and things wind up okay, he will get credit for listening to experts. Indeed, you might be able to say that he would only hire the best people. If he fires them, it reinforces every negative element that has been highlighted within an inch of its life by the media. The choice is his. But at the end of the day, the disease is going to take its course. Much of our reaction is kind of already set in stone. We can do our best, we can innovate, we can pivot in the moment, but a lot of this is going to be us realizing exactly how bad we burned our hand on the stove. There's been a lot of conversation about South Korea and how great they tracked and handled this coronavirus. And part of the reason is, is that they were ripped apart by SARS. This is us getting ripped apart. And so regardless of our reaction, regardless of the death toll, both in terms of our survival, which will eventually fill in our political reality, we have to understand that we are in this together. And based on my timeline, based on at least the political situation that I can gather, we're going into war separately. This is an all-hands-on-deck situation. The world is going to be a dark place. Trump is, as he ever has been, alone aside from his hardcore supporters. It takes two sides to meet in the middle, or at least suspend hostilities. But by my view, we haven't seen that from much of anyone. The Senate bill predictably turned into another pork-stuffing contest where everyone understood that the money faucet was being turned on and elbowed their way in front of it to position their buckets that would benefit their friends. Trump has seemingly worked well with some of the governors in New York State, Washington, and California, but today on Twitter mocked his old rival Mitt Romney when he tested negative for the virus. Quite honestly... I don't think anyone in power has particularly understood this one fact. The life that we had is over. Now, we might build a new life that looks suspiciously like it, but it, for now, is done. 
Nobody has particularly taken this very seriously, in my opinion, or at least as serious as we are about to be forced to take it. Hell, a Biden super PAC today released an attack ad as our death curve is escalating. This is regular terminology. The death curve is escalating and we have an, an, an attack ad out. Let me ask you this. Does that sound like something that is covered positively in history books? The election turned when challenger Joe Biden released an attack ad while the death curve was escalating. Because it doesn't to me. Here's my only hope. That this teaches us a lesson about our current level of partisanship. Because when the enemy showed up on our shores, we secretly hoped that the damage, sometimes fatal, that it would do would affect the other side before it affected us. Crisis comes to every presidency. We don't blame them for that. What matters is how they handle it. Donald Trump didn't create the coronavirus, but he is the one who called hoax, who eliminated the pandemic response team, and who let the virus spread unchecked across America. Crisis comes to every president. This one failed. Unite the country is responsible for the content of this advertising. That is the Joe Biden ad that I referenced just a couple seconds ago excoriating President Trump for his reaction to the coronavirus. Now, I'll leave it to political people to fact check through what they think is accurate and what they think isn't in terms of the claims that are made. I made my point clear. I don't think that right now is a particularly appropriate time to be eroding uh, of faith. The leaders that we have are the leaders that we have. We're going to have eternity to push them uh, out of office based on the evidence that we have gathered uh, once all the dust is settled. I certainly believe that there are plenty of folks who no matter what, even if we do come out with a lower death rate, are going to blame President Trump, and that is their right. But here's my question with where the Biden campaign is going. Because he started doing television yesterday, and it didn't go great. Here are some of the highlights. Why doesn't he just act like a president? That's a stupid way to say it. You know, guess, Donald Trump really was asked wishing... on... Sorry. Go ahead. No, no, I probably best I don't. I just, I just can't figure the guy. It's like, it's, I don't know, it's like watching a yo-yo. I shouldn't have said it that way. It's like watching. It feels that way. I want to ask. I want. <laughs> That's okay. I want to. I want to ask. And then comes this during a virtual press conference. He is asked about a New York Times report that Bernie Sanders is planning on debating him in April. This would, if my math is correct, be the final scheduled debate of the primary. Joe Biden had this to say. My focus is dealing with this crisis right now. I haven't thought about any more debates. I think we've had enough debates. I think we should get on with this. End quote. Well, if that's the case, then Joe Biden is effectively declaring that this primary process is over. If you eliminate debates, then you are effectively unplugging and Biden unplugging with the delegate lead that he has, which in any normal cycle would effectively mean that he's got enough juice to take him to the convention and be the nominee would seem to signal just that. Now, whether or not there'll be a convention is a whole nother conversation, but still, I don't get what Biden is doing. Honestly, I don't. I really, really, really am confused by it. Biden 2020 befuddles the germs. Because 
the pathway to this, to me, seems clear. Both John McCain and Barack Obama suspended their campaigns in 2008 because the market took a crap. That was a financial crisis about people's 401ks. Well, we got one of those, and we've got a living plague ripping through the world. If I were Joe Biden, what I would be doing right now is probably about a week ago, I would have I would have said, look, I'm suspending my campaign so I can best focus on America's recovery. I'm going to use my mailing list to raise money. I'm going to use my live broadcast as ways that I can speak to a portion of the country that gets enraged when they see the face of Donald Trump. That if by any chance, by accident, he says any kind of vital information that could be best passed on, I want to make sure that the scientifically backed kind of messaging that America needs to hear comes from me. You can still do that with a suspended campaign, by the way. In fact, you would be lauded for it. People would fall over themselves to talk about what a great job you're doing. I would then, if I were Joe Biden, leverage any and all of my connections to try to get these, uh, uh, get whatever supplies need to get there. You're telling me that this man has been so far involved with auto unions, has been a power player in Washington, D.C. for decades, and he's got no connections? There's no calls he can make? There's no way that, you know, right now Facebook and Google are turning over a bunch of N95 masks. You're telling me that Joe Biden couldn't be the one who helped broker that deal? There's not a lot of people at Google and Facebook that wouldn't want to give Joe Biden the credit for doing that? There's so much that he could do. There's so many ways that he could look like a leader who puts country over party. And if Donald Trump is out here joking about a beautiful day at the Rose Garden, guess who's going to look more presidential? Oh, by the way, you want to know what else? What happened if he suspended his campaign? De facto, he would end the primary. And it wouldn't be him saying, I don't think I want to debate right now. It, instead, it would be him saying, I'd love to debate. Are you kidding? There would nothing that would make me happier if I were out on the trail and I were shaking hands and kissing babies. But I don't know if you noticed, Bernie, there's a plague ripping through the world and there's a Great Depression at our doorstep. So I'm a little busy right now. Maybe a rain check. This would also put pressure on Bernie to suspend his campaign. Because the reason why McCain and Obama suspended theirs was because they were both senators and they had to work possibly together. But no. Joe Biden is just doing television guest spots, which in my opinion are a political liability because there is a non-zero chance that Donald Trump comes out of this based on the, the current trajectory of his approval ratings as a crisis leader. And what do you think they're going to play? What do you think those Republican ads are going to look like if there is at least a, a, a large minority consensus that Donald Trump shepherded us through this unprecedented crisis? It's going to be Joe Biden stumbling, mumbling, bumbling through a political hit piece segment during an active crisis. That's what they're going to show. I just think it's a very, very, very risky situation. And it's putting the cart before the horse because technically this primary is not over. Meanwhile, as I record this, Bernie Sanders has just announced that he is threatening to put that coronavirus aid package on hold because he is so unhappy with it. Obviously, this would be a huge uh, moment for his supporters, and it would be yet another uh, delay 
to support that could go to America. Which, I mean, again, that's the point of the Senate, is you are getting the rights aboard, and you're not just turning on the faucet and letting everybody elbow each other. So to combat that, let's have some more elbowing. Real quick reminder that if you'd like to support this show, you can do it at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. I am very appreciative for anybody who carves off one thin dime in these uh, uh, uncertain days to support something that they value. Uh, Know that I value you. We got some uh, Campaign Undertaker swag to give away. We have Klobuchar swag. She was the next to drop out, and the Klobuchar swag will go to M and David. You've both won. Go on over to the uh, TakePoliticsSeriously.com post of that episode and uh, see for yourself. Meanwhile, you can always just email me, theyoungamerican at gmail.com, with your uh, address so I can get it sent off to you. Uh, The Pete stuff will be out today because uh, I had to wait for some packaging on the on the signs. All right. Let's get into our interview. My guest today is Eric Geller. He's a cybersecurity reporter for Politico. And he joins us from Washington, D.C. Welcome to the show, Eric. Thanks for having me. Well, the world has changed quite a bit, <laughs> I think, since the last time that we talked. And part of what is on the horizon now is the fact that we still do have primaries, primary contests to go. We still have two at least mathematically viable candidates on the Democratic side. Uh, Tom Perez of the DNC has advised all states to investigate mail-in ballots. And then, of course, we have a general election coming up. So let's go in chronological order. Number one, from your perspective as somebody who focuses a lot on the technology that is used for voting... Is it even feasible, based on some of the guidelines that we are all following with social distancing, to have anything like touch uh, uh, screen voting or uh, uh, just even having the lines that you need to have to to conduct a primary on a massive scale? Well, I mean, this is sort of the perfect storm of factors because states want to provide uh, the touch screens because it's convenient. People like them, um, and it also allows people with disabilities to vote. But as you point out, it's a vector for infection, and it's not like these election offices in these small counties have a ton of volunteers uh, who can be deployed to manage lines and segregate people uh, you know, at six-foot distances. Um, even in the best of times, these are very understaffed teams. So I think this is why you see states like Louisiana and Georgia, which have high-profile primaries coming up, postponing them for months because they don't know how they're going to do this. I mean, they need we're, we're literally at the point where they need time just to plan the logistics of putting people in place to filter lines and um, group people so that they can use this equipment safely. The other thing is, you know, there's just been there's been this, this huge migration to this new touchscreen equipment that has a paper backup. But the downside of that is you've got this brand spanking new equipment. You have a strong incentive to use it. And even if it might be safer to give everybody who can use a paper ballot a paper ballot, and so there's no reuse of equipment, and you can, you know, you know, get enough pens and and wipe them down with Lysol wipes, and you don't have people sharing the touchscreen. Even if you could do that, there's a strong disincentive to do it um, because you've just bought this new equipment. In a lot of cases, these state officials have been saying for years that hand-marked paper ballots are too error-prone. That's why they like the technology. And so you have all those factors pushing against each other and making it very difficult logistically and sort of ideologically to switch away from touchscreens. But that's why you see these delays, because states are, are right now figuring that out. My understanding of at least the staffing that goes into something like this is that it is very... I mean, it's it is completely volunteer driven, but th- there's not a lot of people. It's part of the reason why when I see stuff on social media of these gigantic lines, the first thing that my mind goes to is like, yeah, there's not enough people to run these things, let alone when you now have to take special care in a situation like this. Is that a correct assumption or am I uh, uh, over uh, over over regarding my, my thought about staffing shortages? No, that's absolutely right. Um, And another thing to consider is 
you know, I said before, you know, it's not like these election offices have a lot of staff and volunteers who can be deployed. You also have the problem of these people are old. Um, poll yeah. workers tend to be old. And so when you have to send home everybody over the age of 65 for the foreseeable future, you need to draw an entirely new pool of volunteers. And that's not easy. You know, it's not easy to convince anybody to go outside right now and congregate with other people they don't know. Um, but it's especially difficult when the people who have been volunteering for years, who have what you might call institutional memory of how these things are supposed to work, are shut into their homes because they're at risk of contracting a deadly virus. I mean, this is, this is a, a, a ridiculous situation to be in, but it, it's where we find ourselves. There are some states that are completely mail-in ballots. I know that California, where I'm broadcasting from, has a heavy mail-in ballot presence, but... Thankfully, the state of Washington is totally mail-in ballot, and that came at a perfect time for them, considering that their primary happened as they became one of the biggest hotspots in the country. What are some of the technologies that go into mail-in ballots, and considering there is some kind of lifespan of this disease on certain materials that we are being warned about, is that even safe for the people that are handling them? Yeah. So, uh, you know, what I would guess is happening with the paper ballots that are being mailed in is that they are sitting somewhere for a period of time uh, until, you know, I think scientists say it's like 14 days and then anything on a surface has pretty much died at that point. Um, but that's a problem if you, you know, you're talking about a, a ballot that's mailed in the day before, you know, and the in-person election, the day before the deadline to mail in, you can't really wait two weeks at that point. Um, so you're going to have to have people, I would imagine, you know, putting on gloves and opening these things up. Um, as far as the technology, you know, a lot of states do a combination of things. Um, they will have electronic scanners. Um, you feed the ballot into the scanner. It reads the, the vote choices and it adds it to a, a digital tally. Um, and the digital tallies are added up to get the results. But you also have the ballot um, as a backup if you think that something has gone wrong. Um, there are also states where uh, poll workers will actually make uh, individual tallies by hand. They will read through the ballots and determine who voted for whom and uh, just make another notch on the list. Uh, I, I, you know, pretty clear that the, the scanner option is the safer one because the, you know, if you feed an infected ballot into a scanner, the scanner isn't going to get sick. Now, obviously, from a contagion perspective, it's not good for the scanner, but uh, it's, it's not like that ballot is going to infect a person in that situation. What I think you have to worry about is that these are complex pieces of equipment. It's not like you can go out and buy one off the shelf because they've been certified to federal and state standards, which means they have to be modified and produced in certain ways. And so you got to take good care of them. You can't just say, oh, well, this machine is infected and we don't have enough Lysol wipes to clean it off or we're afraid of damaging it, so we'll put it in the corner, we'll go buy a new one. It's not like a, a printer from Best Buy in that situation. Uh, the procurement for this kind of stuff is done long in advance. And so you, you could very well see a situation where a state uh, moves more slowly because some of its equipment is infected or breaks down for some other reason, and it can't just go out to Best Buy and, and buy another one. So that's definitely a concern as well. So last week on this podcast, I excoriated the uh, head of the DNC, Tom Perez, for putting out a memo saying that states going forward should hold their primaries, but he encouraged them to move to mail-in ballots. And the reason why was because I think he knows damn well, as I believe I know damn well, that you cannot just spin up mail-in balloting uh, initiatives from a material perspective, from a safety perspective, from safeguarding the election perspective, and from a training of your staff perspective. Am I being too hard on him, or is that indeed the case? No, it's true. Um, you know, there's a, there's a great article in ProPublica uh, about the challenges, just logistical challenges, of setting up uh, mail-in voting. Uh, it's not the kind of thing that you can spin up overnight, especially if your state has no experience with it or if you only allow it for absentee balloting, the kinds of things we see across the country in, in most states. Um, it's not the kind of thing you – know, you never want to set up a process overnight for any high-stakes event, but especially for an election, right? I mean, this is not a situation where anybody wants to take a risk that something is going to fail, especially because they're already getting a lot of attention, this being – 2020, the stakes that we're talking about, they're going into this with a certain amount of attention. Coronavirus raises that level of attention. And so the stakes really for, for these election officials who don't get the spotlight a lot, uh, the stakes have never been higher for them. And you do have to worry about 
logistical problems setting up the equipment. You do have to worry about things like voter fraud if, and I say if here because, you know, in-person voter fraud, obviously not a, a big problem, but anytime you set up a new system, you have to worry about people exploiting it when you haven't tested it yet. And so that is a problem uh, that you could see with vote by mail if you spin it up too quickly. Well, at least there's no example of fly-by-night technology affecting this primary already like it did in Iowa and Nevada. Oh, wait. I guess it did. No, no definitely not. Oops. This is not something that I'd, I'd plan on talking to you about, but I just thought here, you obviously, uh, voting technology is one part of what you do a great job in covering over there at Politico, but also is just cyber attacks in general and state-related cyber attacks. I, I've seen that now uh, things like ransomware in hospitals is is a, a consistent problem that continues now with higher stakes. But but also, I was curious, from your perspective, have you heard anything about state-run cyber attacks? Have they abated any? Uh, are they now more persistent? Is there anything on that radar right now from, from your world? You mean in terms of cyber attacks targeting uh, state governments. technology? Yeah, governments to governments uh, or, or the, the, the normal stuff that we normally see from Russia to the U.S. to China to Iran, you know, the, the usual suspects there. Well, it's interesting because... Prior to the coronavirus outbreak, if you can remember that far back, um, which sometimes it's difficult for me to do, yeah. uh, the intelligence community was saying they did not see cyber attacks from Russia um, as much as they saw disinformation campaigns, the, the easier stuff, um, which is you know um, actually harder to stop in that sense yeah. because it's so pervasive. Uh, but but we are seeing you know cyber criminals launch these kinds of attacks. What I think is interesting is we haven't seen a lot of state-backed activity. Um, and part of the reason for that is that even some of the countries that tend to be a little bit more of a loose cannon in cyberspace haven't yet broached this issue of interfering with uh, a public health uh, response. We, we, this is a new situation. The last time we had a global pandemic like this, it was before nation-state cyber attacks had really reached the, the, the point where they were um, a major part of statecraft even just a few years ago. And so governments that are considering this kind of thing, they don't have a playbook for incorporating it into their sort of their statecraft, their doctrine of operations. So you're, gonna, you're seeing in, in Moscow and Beijing and these other places, people are weighing the pros and cons. What would the U.S. do to us if we attacked a hospital in New York that was triaging these cases? That's not a question that anybody can really answer right now because we haven't been in this situation before. And now some people may be surprised to hear that because – China and Russia have not held back from attacking critical infrastructure in Ukraine. They've certainly not held back from attacking us in other ways. But this is a novel situation, and they have to consider whether they can apply the old rules to the new situation. So we're not seeing as much of that right now. Um, you know, now, if it were to happen targeted at state governments, that would be the big, the big issue. You know, the federal government has a lot of open, you know, vulnerabilities, but it is better at marshalling the resources to respond. As you pointed out, with these ransomware attacks on state governments, the states are in no position to respond. And if, you know, if they weren't ready before the coronavirus, I cannot even imagine how much less ready they are right now. No, there, there, there's no hacker in the closet that's going to secure that network, uh, you know, tumbling right. out in an Aikido style with a code red Mountain Dew in hand. Uh all right, let me let me uh, uh, ask you about just some general internet stuff because this is something that I have noticed personally. We've seen companies respond to it, and that is just basically the health of the internet at large as everybody virtualizes on a level that they have never really been forced to before. YouTube announced yesterday that they were moving to a standard definition as the default. So if you were going to watch anything, you could still bump it up to high definition, but the thing that the, the way it will initially play is a lower resolution in Europe. You've seen uh, a similar moves with Netflix uh, that are, that are trying to slow down or, or uh, degrade some of their quality. So the internet itself can be a little healthier. Do you think that this is a position that the government might have to step in on considering how much we do rely on the internet right now? So it's interesting. It, it seems intuitive that as more people spend more time online, the you know relatively fixed amount of infrastructure that we have to serve it up uh, is going to be more strained. 
But when Netflix, you know, when the European Union asked Netflix to degrade the quality of its content in order to manage the, the traffic issues, I saw a lot of backlash to that online from uh, Internet infrastructure experts who were basically saying there's no need for this. Now, they, they might have been saying that prematurely. We don't know. But certainly there have been times in the past where there have been surges of activity far above the normal level of activity, and Netflix has been able to weather those if anybody's you know, able to produce HD content uh, with more people than ever watching, it is a company like Google or Netflix. So I don't know how much this is the companies looking for any opportunity to act like they're helping and how much it's they're actually seeing a problem with latency or load or things like that. Now, I will say, you know, when you sort of go beyond the this video streaming element and look at other types of Internet activity, you know, Facebook announced that it was having trouble uh, keeping all of its services online, and that's not even a video streaming platform, right? Yeah. So I do think that as this continues for longer, you could see some strain. Uh, you know, you, you make a good point that this is a new situation, so we don't know what it means for the Internet to have this amount of activity for this long. The Internet might be great at handling this amount of activity or even double this amount of activity for an hour, but we're now in week three, essentially, uh, especially in the U.S., and who knows what that looks like? Who knows what that means for this infrastructure going forward? You know, anecdotally, I can I can say that uh, it sure seems like my S, but my uh, ISP throttles my upload at the very least around a certain time every morning. It, it tends to go from about thirteen up to three up as I've been able to measure it. And uh, you know, one of the ways that we that we can communicate with the audience is Twitch, which it seems like the world has discovered now. Uh, but uh, uh, they have had consistent problems over the last 48 hours. So it, it certainly seems like something has provided some kind of challenge, whether or not it is a challenge to the infrastructure, I guess, remains to be seen. Huh? Yeah, and that's right. I mean, the, the thing to emphasize here is that a lot of what, you know, I and other people who know, you know, a slight amount about this are saying, you know, is based on past experience. And as we've said many times in this conversation, there's no precedent for this in a lot of ways. And so we are going to have to see whether some of our expectations are just completely out of sync with reality because we don't have a model for what this looks like. Because <laughs> we've never actually had a global pandemic that puts everybody in their house and they need to rely on the Internet on a level that they've never uh, had to do before. Uh, exactly. All right. So here's here's the other big thing that I really wanted to talk to you about, because you have very much been, in my opinion, at the forefront of covering, uh, at least in venues where politicians read it, like Politico, uh, uh, about online voting infrastructure and the challenges therein. So just for folks who have not read your work before or have heard you on this show before, lay out some of the, the promise and peril of online voting. Yeah, so the promise is, is pretty straightforward, which is you don't need to be able-bodied um, or have a free time to go to a polling center in order to vote because you can do it from your phone or your desk or whatever. Um, you, know, you can do it uh, in the language that you use on your computer without necessarily having to go to somewhere that only has materials in English. I mean, you could sort of imagine how um, being able to vote from where you normally do your Internet activity makes things a lot easier. It, it can expand the franchise, in a sense, to a lot of people who don't have the time or resources to go to a polling place. So that's an incredible promise. Now, the peril, of course, is that any complex system that uses the Internet is vulnerable in ways that humans can't fully wrap their heads around because we are talking about computers that do a lot of activity on their own. Um, and so you have many, many opportunities and weak points for a hacker to get somewhere into the chain of the data as it's moving from your computer to the election center and disrupt it. And, you know, when, when I talk about this, people often say, well, we can bank online. Why can't we vote online? And there's a number of reasons, not the least of which is while you have a password to access your bank account, the bank knows exactly where you're putting your money and where you're getting your money from. There is no anonymity or secrecy in banking, um, whereas there needs to be in voting. And that makes it a lot harder to protect information uh, and, and to create confidence that your data has gone where it needs to. So, so that's the big problem with Internet voting um, is that there is no way to know for certain, which is the standard that we make ourselves use with elections. There's no way to know for certain that the button you clicked uh, is being recorded that way over at the election office. 
So previous to everything that's gone on right now, I've tended to think that this is the kind of conversation that really only <laughs> exists between people like me and you because the 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 body politic is uh, it, it you know it has a tendency to be technophobic. Uh, there is always going to be a reason why somebody is is going to want to poo-poo an, an idea like this, even on a pilot level, just to see uh, how trustworthy it could be. However, the world we find ourselves in now is very virtualized. The threat that we face outside of our door is nothing short of deadly... I was having a conversation with a, a, a friend of mine, Darren Kitchen from Hack Five, the other day, and he was saying, uh, you know, that 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 this will definitely never happen. It's always going to be a hackable system. And my counter to him would be, if it's ever going to get any kind of traction, it would be now in this election, just even to test the viability. What say you, Eric? Yeah, so I think you're right that if there was ever a time for a critical mass of people to ask for something like this, it would be now. Um, because now, in addition to what I talked about before, where you have people who uh, are disabled or they're in communities where they can't get to a polling place, on top of all of that, which has always been the case, you have – it's literally unsafe to leave your house to some degree, um, to a very real degree – and so there, there's, you know, that unites everybody. It doesn't matter how rich or poor you are. It doesn't matter if you're differently abled. You are vulnerable if you go outside and go to vote. And so that does unite everybody in wanting this alternate solution. Um, as far as whether it will happen in a, in a pilot level or anything like that, the one thing I would say is, you know, as we talked about earlier with mail-in voting, any change to the way you handle an election for logistical and obviously legal reasons takes a long time to implement, um, yeah. you know, in terms of signing the contracts and, you know, even testing the test equipment before you let the general public test it. That is a long runway. And I don't see a situation where anybody, even the people who really, really want this, um, could, could launch this kind of project with the time we have left before the election. Um, and part of that is because you have security experts looking over their shoulder and, you know, activists, for, for good government and election integrity looking over their shoulder and really paying attention to whether they're going to do something like this. So they face a lot of pressure to do this right if they're going to do it. And I don't necessarily know that they even have the time left to set up something like this for November. So I'll be watching to see if it happens. Um, there are already states and counties that had partnerships with a company called Votes uh, to do this kind of thing. Um, and so, you know, there's been interest and there have, there have been pilot tests. And I guess you could see some of those localities restarting those activities with this in mind. But for somebody who hasn't already laid the groundwork to build that kind of relationship with a vendor, I don't I don't see it happening before November. Are there any champions in in Congress or in federal government uh, for something like this, that if folks wanted to keep an eye on this, that, that they would be looking at these Congress people or senators? So in terms of the, the pro-internet voting side, you have a lot of people who are not necessarily security experts, but are, are you know, who hear a lot from constituents who have disabilities or have uh, other issues getting to a polling place who are really interested in trying to find a way to make this work. They're not at the point where they're giving speeches saying that we need to do it now or they're introducing bills, but there's a lot of interest sort of diffused across Congress um, in getting this to work. But I would describe it as the kind of let's find a way to do this safely because it sounds really good uh, type of rhetoric, as opposed to we need to do this now. It is safe. We shouldn't worry too much about what the experts are saying. But there aren't too many people who are going that far yet. And part of the reason is that the, the, the examples of why this is dangerous are so clearly articulated. Um, whenever researchers look at these websites, um, and these apps, they find a ton of problems in them, including with votes, which is sort of the leading player in this field. And so there isn't a lot of interest in sort of going against those experts right now. And, and part of that is because until we got into this coronavirus situation, the constituencies demanding this, really, you know, doing the pressure campaigns and, you know, deluging the phones with, with calls was a, a minority of the electorate. Um, and yeah. it was, it was uh, activist groups who have specific needs and concerns. Um, now that we're in this situation, I don't know if you're going to see a change to that where people are flooding their member of Congress about Internet voting. But right now, there are not a lot of people out there 
who have made it their raison d'etre to sort of say, we need to do this and we need to do it now. So let's look at the more realistic path, and that is that uh, we have we have heard some rumblings about the idea of a national vote-by-mail initiative. We talked a little bit about how much runway that you would need for it. How realistic do you think getting the you know money, time, and effort to, to put into a national infrastructure for that is realistic? And again, who are the players that we would look at uh, if, if we thought that something like this might go forward? Well, that's interesting. Uh, just this morning, the Senate bill that was released um, uh, to do coronavirus relief included $400 million in election assistance grants to the states to just sort of generally uh, respond to the coronavirus threat. Um, and this would be administered through the Election Assistance Commission, which is the small agency that handles these grants. So Congress is interested in helping states respond generally, but an effort to put in money specifically for mail-in voting did fail because a lot of uh, particularly conservative lawmakers didn't want to see a nationwide top-down system for how voting had to occur. And this gets back to longstanding disagreements, even among some Democrats, about what role the federal government should play in telling states how to run the elections. Congress does have the power to uh, determine to some degree the manner in which elections are held. But in Congress for the past few years, there's been this fight between people like Senator Ron Wyden, for example, who's been saying every state should be required to use hand-marked paper ballots with some touch screens for people with disabilities, but every state should do that. Uh, and then people on the right, for example, Rodney Davis, who's the top Republican on the House committee that oversees elections, has sort of been the leading Republican voice saying, um, you know, Iowa is not Minnesota, is not New York, and we cannot tell all these states that they need to use the same approach to voting. And so that debate has been in the background over the past week as lawmakers just sort of fight about whether or not to require mail-in voting nationwide. And the, so the upshot of that is the effort did fail. It was one of those provisions on the Democratic side that they sort of quietly said, all right, well, we'll take this out. You know, I almost feel like they inserted it so that they'd be able to take it out later and say that they were compromising because yeah. they must have known this was never going to go anywhere. Um, and indeed, it did fall out of the bill. So there is some money for general election assistance, but the mail-in effort um, seems to have failed for now. And I think if you were to ask some of the Democrats who are pushing it, they would tell you in private, even if we did say every state must explore the use of mail-in voting for November, a lot of states wouldn't be able to get it done in time. I mean, first of all, the people in, in charge are, are also responsible for a lot of other things. So secretaries of state do things besides elections. And you can sort of imagine right now they <laughs> yeah. have a few other things on their plate. <laughs> a little bit. Um, so there's yeah, so, so there's that. I mean, you know, a lot of them would not be able to pull this off, even if Congress told them that they needed to look at it. So that's kind of where we are right now. I mean, it is it is just such a fascinating uh, problem, and it's all the more vexing when you wonder if let, let's say we get through this and let's say that that summer heat does something for some of our reinfection rates. By the time that November, the first week of November rolls around. You know, that's that's when historically you've seen some of these illnesses kind of make a comeback and uh, that would wreak all new fresh havoc on on our, our election season. Yeah, I, uh, the next few months are, are not going to be the best time to, to be an American. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, we will be made marginally better at the very least. I know I was by talking to Eric Geller. He is a cybersecurity reporter for Politico. You can follow him on Twitter at Eric Geller and find his writing at Politico.com. In fact, uh, Eric, a, a lot of your stuff, at least in the past, has uh, appeared beyond the paywall for Politico. But but for my money, that's a reason to go ahead and get it. Uh, uh, is, is that still the case? I know I've seen more stuff on on the on, on the front page. Yeah, they, they do tend to uh, throw the election stuff over that paywall when they can because there is such a, a widespread interest in it. But um, I, I appreciate the plug for uh, Politico Pro. I'm, I'm sure our sales team will appreciate it. There too. we go. Go and get Politico Pro. Tell them that, that, that Justin sent you. And uh, uh, please continue to read the excellent writing of Eric. Eric, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And that will about wrap it up for us too. Day. Before we head on out, I want to thank my Titanic $10 tier. Dennis, Brad, Robert, Olin, and Angela, Dustin, 
Richard Kilowatt, Darren, Daily Tech News Show, Milk Leg, Jay Milius, Paul, Jonathan, The Jen, Nicholas, Adam, Zach, Chad, Andrew, Peter, Nick, Frozen, Jim, DL, Lindsay, Steven, Adam, D Laser, and Middle Aged Mike. Uh, for wherever you guys, I don't know what I do, man. Uh, uh, thank you, thank you, thank you. It just means the world. If you want to get in touch with the show, it is theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Again, that is theyoungamerican at gmail.com. A reminder that five days a week, I'm writing a newsletter, free political newsletter at freepoliticalnewsletter.com. You want to follow me on the interwebs? Well, it's easy. Social media style, baby. Justin R. Young on Instagram. Justin R. Young on Twitter. Till next time, this is your old pal, Justin Robert Young, saying, I saw a show that was talking about politics. Then another show, man. I saw that was talking about politics. And then there was an Instagram story that was talking about politics, but this is the only program that dares to talk about. Oh. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>